0: Welcome to the Mr. TV Podcast, a love letter to shows of the past. On today's episode, we're speaking with St. Moses Mikan, who was one of the co-hosts of Beekman's World. Beekman's World had four seasons and three different co-hosts. There was Josie, Liza, and Phoebe, who was played by our guest today. We talked to her about becoming part of the Beekman family, memories from the set including a close encounter with a lion, and why she brought the cast and crew together for reunion years later.
1: Santa Moses Miken, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. It's
1: great to have you here. Um, so today we're talking about your role as Phoebe on Beekman's World. Yes. And I was just wondering, how did you get involved in the show?
2: an audition. I went in and met with Michael Donovan, who was the casting director at the time. And it was a pre-read. It was just me and him. And then he brought me back to producers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember Mark Waxman, who was the executive producer, was in the room. And Jay Dubin, the director, was in the room and casting. Michael Donovan was there. And then I. it was like the very standard process of auditioning there was the pre-read there was the producer call and then I tested for the studio and then I tested for the network and then I got it so it was it was really a crazy experience um just because it's such a unique show with such a specific tone that um it was just it was a fun audition because there was no such thing as too broad or too big of a choice or <laughs> you know you could you really couldn't Go too far just because of the nature of the show, so that made it so fun, so mm-hmm. fun to do.
1: Well, the show had been around for a couple of years before you got the role as a exactly. TV on the show. What did you know about the show, kind of going into it though?
2: Well, like most projects, uh, when I got the audition, I immediately watched an episode or two because mm-hmm. I wanted to know the tone. I wanted to know what I was auditioning for. Uh, so I had seen Alana do an episode and I saw Eliza do an episode. I watched one of each to see if the show had. Changed in any way from the first season or the earlier episodes to the later episodes, and um, I loved it. It was it was like Mr. Wizard on acid to me. You know, <laughs> it was just it was so. I remember the first time I watched an episode, I thought, "Wow, this is really smart because it's science and it's real information, but it's told in a way." That it's really exciting to watch it could have I mean if they were just to spew out those scientific facts or describe those scientific experiments You'd fall asleep, but they found a way to like do it in a very exciting way that was just it was sensory overload right from the start So I was really excited uh, after seeing the couple episodes and then very excited obviously to audition for it
1: Yeah, and and we can sort of skip ahead a little bit So once you got the role, so what were their expectations of you as the actress in the role as a co-host?
0: Hmm.
2: Well, that's hard to say, because I don't really know the answer to that. I know Hmm. that over the course of, I did 26 episodes. So it was, it ended up being two seasons. I think they split it in half. Um, But I was asked to do everything from yeah, acting, to singing, to dancing, to working with animals, to doing circus tricks, to doing, you know, like all of this stuff that was all of these skills that, to be honest, I had trained my whole life doing, you know, because like I started dancing when I was three years old, I started singing around the same time, so it was, it, I was able to use all of my different skills in the same show, and that was so fun. Um, so I think it, uh, the writers were awesome in that they always asked me if I was comfortable with things, like I remember. <laughs> there was this one incident where they had written this character that this one of the writers, MJ Miller had written this character of Cleopatra and they knew I was from Chicago. So she wrote it with a very heavy Chicago accent, like <laughs> about as heavy as you could possibly get, you know, right out of like an SNL bears sketch. And she brought it to me and she's like, what do you think of this? And I, I lost all the color in my face because I could no longer do a Chicago accent. I had gone to a dialect coach to lose it, and I couldn't oh. like, I couldn't pull it out to save my life. You know, when I'm <laughs> when I'm around my friends from Chicago, sometimes I I slide into it. But I had practiced so hard to get out of it that the idea of trying to now do a Chicago accent was just terrifying to me. And I think she knew that, and she said, "Okay." She goes, "Well, what else? What else can we do? What other accents do you like?" And Cleopatra ended up being like. A New Jersey, like a Tata girl, you know, like like I kind of think of her kind of like a Rosie Perez type of character.
0: (laughs) She romanced Mark Anthony. She made Julius Caesar. Put your powder puffs together for Cleopatra.
2: Excuse me for barging in, but I overheard you talking about cosmetics. (laughs) (laughs) So they were very open to... Working with things that maybe I didn't feel comfortable doing, or I didn't think I could do, or weren't in my skill set. Mm-hmm. You know, they were great about that.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, you were preceded by two hosts before you, I think who you mentioned before. There was Eliza Schneider and uh, Alana Ubach. And I was wondering, did you get a chance to sort of work with them uh, before you took the role?
2: No, which is mm. so funny because I- I've never met Alana. And um, I met Eliza for the first time when I threw the Beekman's World Reunion a few mm-hmm. years ago. That was the first time we had ever communicated, had ever been in the same room. And that was so crazy that there was no there was no overlap in that way. Yeah. But, you know, Eliza was adorable and wonderful. And I'm sure Alana is the same. I mean, yeah.
1: joining you on set there is, you know, Beekman, Paul Zaloom, yes. and Lester, Mark Ritz. I was wondering, you, you know, what was it like working with them on the show?
2: They were awesome. I loved, I mean, I, I, I love them so much. Uh, it, they were so welcoming immediately. Uh, just for, uh, to, to walk onto a set where the majority of those people had been there together since season one. You know, there was a bit of anxiety before I walked on set. Like I'm walking into an established family because very, uh, many of the crew members were the same. Many of the producers and the writers were the same. Jay Dubin, our director, had directed every episode since the first. So it was very much like walking into an established family. But from the moment I walked on the set, they were just lovely and so helpful and so accommodating. Because it is, um, it it was a very unique beast. You know, when you take. Just the science alone, that's an incredible hurdle and a challenge to be sure that you know you're doing all of the science correctly and that you understand what you're saying because you can't teach children what you're doing unless you actually understand what you're doing. So that's a challenge all in itself. And then you add to it the nature of the show and the set and the the wardrobe and the dealing with each other and talking into the camera. And I remember uh, the first week of shooting uh the camera had a teleprompter in it where uh all of our dialogue would be in there um but I'm gonna be real honest with you, Matthew. I was crap at the teleprompter like <laughs> I could not do it to save my life i just it, i couldn't it, my brain wasn't connecting it like i couldn't it just it wasn't working for me, so after like the very first day, I started just memorizing everything like I would. For any other project, you know, you you break down the scenes, you want to make some choices, et cetera, et cetera, and you memorize the words. And Mark and Paul were so funny about it because you know they they were using the teleprompter like experts, and I was not using it at all. So (laughs) it was just it was they were but they were so open to what I needed to do to make the show work. In my world, you know what I mean? Like they weren't like, okay, you got to use the teleprompter. Like it wasn't like that at all. It was like, do whatever you want to do. We're here for you. It's cool. So I ended up going through all 26 episodes, just, you know, I don't know if you'd call it old school or just ignorant to the teleprompter, but I didn't <laughs> use it at all. I was so bad. It was
1: so bad. Well, we had talked to Paul uh, Zaloom before this, and he'd mentioned uh, about the set that existed on Beekman's World, and not just the physical set, but yeah, the the sort of feeling that existed on the set. And he said, unlike a lot of other things that he worked on, it was very relaxed. People could walk in, they could sort of, you know, take it easy, they could have fun, they could make suggestions. Was your experience like that as well?
2: Absolutely. It Mm. was 100% a collaboration. Like, when you're watching the show, all the little moments between Mark and Paul and I and even the animals that came on, like a lot of that was us just working it out on the day with Jay, our director, thinking about when we wanted to look into the camera, when we wanted to have a reaction to something that someone said or what that reaction was. It was a very, a very communicative collaborative set, um, which was exciting because that means that you could make suggestions and take chances and sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't. And either way there was support and love and humor. I mean, I just remember a lot of laughing. (laughs) I remember a lot of laughing on that set. And Mark Ritz was just, God, brilliant, 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 brilliant man. And he used to just, I mean, Paul too, Mark used to just crack me up with some of the stuff he'd come up with. He reminded me so much of Stan Laurel because I grew up watching Laurel and Hardy because of my dad. And
0: Hmm. there
2: were things and mannerisms that Mark would do that reminded me so much of Stan Laurel and just his timing and his facial expressions and the way that he responded to things and that sort of innocent quality about him. Um, Yeah, it was, Matthew, it was too much fun. I I shouldn't even call it a job. (laughs) I can't (laughs) believe I got paid for it.
1: Well, we had talked a lot about the energy on the set and we talked to Paul about sort of, you know, how he sort of had to work himself up into his character. He told me that he would drive to work and try to work himself up into being the happiest person in the world. (laughs) And that's that's the energy he really brought to the show. I mean, what was it like sort of matching that energy? How did you work yourself into that, you know, highly energized mode?
2: Well, I... My whole life, I've been highly caffeinated, so let me say that. Um, I think just as a person, I have a lot of energy, and honestly, quite often, I find that I have to like slow myself down. I have to like change my natural energy because I think my natural energy is high and up and fast. And um, so, I didn't have to work towards that as much. Walking on set—that's that's kind of more my norm. You know, it's it's more of a challenge for me when I'm doing, you know, a one hour drama to sort of like, settle and calm and find my center where with Beekman, it was just like, you know, pedal to the floor, let's have fun.
1: <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Um, well, um, one thing about your your two co hosts is that you know Paul, I would say, is a little unrecognizable without I think what they call the roadkill on his head. Um,
2: <laughs> oh my god, that wig! Yeah.
1: Yeah, and Mark Ritz as well. Like he's in he's in a full rat suit. I mean, he he looks ridiculously funny. And but I mean, if you saw him on the street, you you may not have recognized him necessarily. But you still look like Phoebe on and off of set. Um, yeah. Did you ever get recognized while you're out there in the world?
2: You know, I did. I did. And that was kind of fun because I think the people that watched the show and were fans of the show really loved it. So mm. they were always very excited um, to, to come up to me and talk to me and tell me about, you know, different things that they learned or different science experience that, experiments that they replicated at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was really fun. Um, yeah, I never thought about that. But yeah, I guess Paul and, and Mark could just kind of blend away yeah i I had no chance in hell of that (laughs) i mean my hair gives me away
1: (laughs) Mm. i I guess that's the thing is is is, um, paul also mentioned that he's kind of like um not entirely recognizable where he lives but if he goes to somewhere like Mexico or Brazil yeah Yeah. then uh, it's like superstar status
2: it's so funny because I had no idea and uh, a few years ago Paul sent me an email uh, which was just a video of him in Brazil with a sea of people that he was performing for and I was like what is happening like I had no idea because we never hear about that like I have no idea who's watching the show out of the country Um, so that was really, really exciting to hear that it's, it's, you know, speaking to people in different countries and Paul loves being a rock star, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, a a big part of the show is answering questions from kids. And and these are real questions that come from, you know, the kids. Are there any of them that were, you know, particularly memorable for you?
2: Ooh, you know, I don't have memories of. Particular questions. Mm-hmm. I have more memories of particular moments on the show. Like the memory, one of, one of the memories that sticks out for me the most is when we had a lion on the show, like a full grown lion. And, you know, we're, Paul and I are standing in front of the lion and we're facing the camera and the lion is behind us. And the lion's trainer is right by the camera with a piece of meat on a stick and he's waving the meat around the lens so the lion will keep looking forward and i remember during one shot the piece of meat fell off the stick and landed on the ground the lion jumped up and was like about to pounce on the meat and paul was like god (laughs) god we took a really long break because you 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 realize very quickly the power of a full-grown lion
0: behold the king of beasts is he a big enough cat for a cynical rat? <laughs> you call this flea bag a
2: lion? Why he wouldn't hide a hair on my filthy lice-ridden head? But there were like there were like moments like that, or you know, little moments like when we were doing we did a whole episode on sewage, and they had us they had our heads in toilets. Like it was just the most ridiculous. It was just ridiculous and fun, and there was nothing that they shied away from. Like, I remember I had to work with dung beetles and a pig. We had a pig. I think I walked on a, like, as a circus performer on a high wire. I did that. Like, it was, they were just throwing everything at us. So I have, I don't have moments of specific questions. I have memories of just just crazy incidents that happened on the set
1: Hmm.
2: while we were shooting. Yeah.
1: One thing that's important is that there's a whole team of people facilitating this kind of stuff. You know, there's crew members, producers, directors, Jay Dubin, who you mentioned before. I mean, are there any people um, who you'd like to sort of you know, highlight uh, for their, I guess, oh. work on the show?
2: Oh, my gosh, yes. Okay, so obviously Jay, Jay Dubin, our mm. director, our commander-in-chief. Although don't tell him I said that. <laughs> um, he, yeah, he was right there with us in the trenches every single day. Um, I do want to give a huge shout-out to our writers. Um Casey Keller and MJ Miller, Richard Albrecht, uh, Barry Friedman, if I'm forgetting anybody it's because this all happened over 20 years ago <laughs> um, but they they were just incredible and they did so much research and had every science experiment completely thought out before we even got the scripts I mean and they would always come on to set when we were filming and show us the experiments and work, you know, through them with us. So we knew what we were doing. They were really incredible. I want to give a shout out to Betsy Potter, who was the incredible wardrobe designer who designed all of my costumes and she made them all, Matthew. Mm -hmm. She made them all from scratch. She even brought in weird little rubber animals to, to sew into my hair. I mean, she was incredible. The, the, the job that she did, if you, you know, go back and watch the show every single costume was completely different and completely unique and so uh, like on topic for whatever we were talking about and i used to love that like i I remember reading the scripts and then going in for a wardrobe fitting and just thinking what is betsy going to put me in um so definitely to her uh bob green our incredible set designer who just i mean everything you saw was him he was so brilliant uh who else Uh, robert heath pam push our producers Oh, I know who. Speaking of Pam Putsch, uh, Jean Stapleton, who played Beekman's mom. Uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, Matthew, that was was a big deal. I'm really, in hindsight, surprised I kept my cool around her. (laughs) (laughs) She's just like a comedic legend. And she's actually Pam's mom. Pam Putsch, our producer, Jean Stapleton is her mom. And when Jean walked on the set, I mean, she was just brilliant from start to finish. And I was so lucky to be able to watch her do what she did. And uh, so definitely to her. And of course, to to Mark and Paul, who I just loved dearly. And, you know, Mark passed away almost 10, 10 years ago now, maybe. Um, yeah, just uh, those two guys were just, they were family. I mean, I we hung out offset I still keep in contact with Mark's wife uh, Teresa and his daughter Gabriella that's actually how the reunion came about is okay. Gabriella Mark's daughter is an incredible artist and she had a gallery opening and she invited a bunch of people to it and naturally because you know being part of the Beekman family, your family, she invited a bunch of people from Beekman's world. So we were at this gallery opening and we started talking and I was specifically talking to Casey Keller, one of the writers. And I said, I miss everybody. I want to see everybody. And then I just got a bug up my ass and I'm like, I'm going to schedule a (laughs) reunion. We're doing a reunion. We're doing it at my house. And I just reached out to everybody I could find and told them to pass the information on to everybody they knew. Mm -hmm. And we ended up, you know, getting to see each other and reconnect. And also I got to meet some people that I had never met from previous seasons, which was cool. And, um, yeah, that's, that's how that all went down at, uh, Gabriella's art exhibit.
1: Don't, don't you miss the pre COVID world when you could do that? Oh, right? oh yeah. It's so
2: crazy. It's so crazy to think about, especially when I look at, you know, old pictures, or even when I'm watching TV and I see people touching, it's a little bit traumatizing.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um well uh speaking of the sort of beekman family i mean you were part of the what was the final season of the show Mm -hmm. um did you and the crew sort of know that the show was going to be ending oh
2: i don't remember knowing i remember Mm. like most tv shows you're waiting for a pickup you know it wasn't it wasn't like a slam dunk cancellation it's over And it wasn't an early pickup. It was that sort of like in between where you're like, well, we don't know what's going to happen. And at the time, the question was, um, I think it involved around educational television and how much money the networks were going to develop and um, give to educational TV. And I think, you know, at the time they just decided not to because we were on CBS. So uh, we actually, I think... I I mean, I definitely thought we would get picked up because we were educational, but it didn't happen, which is a bummer because I could have, I could have kept going. Imagine the things I could have (laughs) learned.
1: Like I I imagine, you know, if if Beacon World had kept going, I'd imagine that it would go for years and years and years. You have so many different co-hosts, and everyone would be, you know, exposed to that great family that you talked about, and that's such a shame.
2: That would have been so fun just to see all the different incarnations of it. Yeah. To see it change and evolve. And, and then as science changed and evolved and grew and new things happened, oh, that would have been so fun. Maybe they'll reboot it.
0: <laughs> I hope if, so.
2: If, if they do, just know that the idea happened right now. Like I just sure. said it out loud.
1: <laughs> right here now. This is where it Here starts. now, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of the end of the show and, and it's, its sort of, you know, lasting legacy, you know, to you, what is the legacy of Beekman's world?
2: Um, you know, I think for fans, like we came into their home once a week and taught them something that I don't know if they would have been able to grasp in the same way. Like, so I think about one of the experiments we did, which was like weighing a car. Now, when you think about weighing a car, you think, oh my God, there's no way. But then you watch the episode and after 15 minutes, you're like, I could go weigh my car, you know, and a lot of people went and did. So I think the legacy and the, everyone's going to remember that, that Beekman's world found a way to make science approachable, found a way to make science fun, which is so important. You know, it got kids interested in doing experiments and trying things out and learning about animals and learning about things that maybe would have been out of their grasp otherwise. And I think that's kind of cool, you know, that we were, that we were able to do that. Um, I think that's, I think that's important to find a way to make science fun because it, it definitely, you know, gets a bad rap in schools, you know, everyone bags on science and math, but it's awesome. And it can (laughs) be awesome if taught in the right way
0: the less weight a tire holds up, the less it's smooshed against the road and the smaller its footprint.
2: So, if you know the size of the tire's footprint and the pressure of the air inside the tire, then you can figure out how much weight that tire is holding up.
0: And
1: if you add up the weight each tire is holding up, you know the weight of the car.
2: Checking our owner's manual, we see that the 1961 Beat will 1,990
1: pounds. And just this sort of final sort of question coming, uh, sort of wrapping things up here. I mean, you had talked about over email with me and I think I saw something on on Twitter uh, that you had posted saying you're going to have to sort of rack your brain to think about (laughs) talking about Beekman's world. Yeah, I said my
2: old ass brain. I
0: hope I can remember. (laughs) Yeah. I
1: I mean, is this really, I mean, like your first time really talking about your role on the show? Or to like a... Yeah,
2: Yeah, I have to be honest, Matthew. It's been a long time since I've Mm. spoken about this world. I mean, I I often get asked about Home Alone. I often get asked about my so-called life. So those two things are the the, the majority of the questions when I do a podcast interview. Occasionally, Beekman will get mentioned, but it's very much... An afterthought. So this was really fun, and I was excited and nervous and wondering how much my brain would remember. And I'm full disclosure: I watched two episodes before I signed on with you because I was like, <laughs> I gotta get back into like the headspace, and I was hoping that I would spark a few memories hmm. uh, just from watching it.
1: Well, I mean, this has been an amazing sort of um, trip down memory lane, and you've given me so many different ways I can pop in clips.
2: <laughs> oh, do so, you do that? Do you yeah, I'm, I'm like... gonna,
1: I'm gonna try to find as many clips as I can, and you know, damn be to the copyright strikes or whatever that might come. I'll, I'll figure they're, out a way.
2: <laughs> they're all, on um, every episode is online.
1: Yeah, it's all online. So that's good. It's yeah. really, I, I love being able to throw in a clip and you mentioned so many. So I'm going to have a lot of fun editing this one.
2: Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, I could, there were so many, there were mm-hmm. so many moments. Um, I remember doing nurse Phoebe, which was just a flat out impression of my, grandma on my dad's side <laughs> like it was, there, we, it was definitely one of those shows where I had to pull from everywhere like no one around me was safe if I could figure out a way to do an impression or steal <laughs> something I would
1: oh, gotcha. <laughs> well Santa Moses Miken, it's been great having you on the podcast and thank you so much for your time
2: well thank you Matthew this was fun
0: thanks for listening to the show and thanks to Santa for being with us this bring an end to our series on Beekman's World, and thanks for listening in. We have more episodes on the way this time featuring something kind of spooky and hairy, so stay tuned for that. I'll see you after this commercial break.